Test, there it is. Yay! All right. Good morning, Living Stones. Can we bow in prayer? Let's do that. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Father, for calling us. Thank you, Father, for your great love. Thank you, Father, for this way that we can communicate with you and boldly approach your throne. Thank you, Father, for sharing with us and giving us opportunity to be your vessel, to be your image, to share your love. Thank you, Father, for this time of worship where we can come together as your family, your sons and daughters, and come to you and cry out to you, Abba, Daddy. Thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I love that verse. Oftentimes we'll go to that verse when I think about speaking or teaching or referencing anything in prayer. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I like that verse because of the last part of that verse. It says, is powerful and effective. I want my prayers to be effective and and to know that I can come before God and I can present my requests to him and to know that they are going to count for something. But the first part of that verse is what I have a hard time with. The prayer of a righteous man. That's not me. I'm so imperfect. When When I think about coming before God on his throne, I am humbled because I know that I don't measure up. I can't make it there. Uh, when I think about who I am, when I think about the, the, uh, the negative things, the errors, I find that I'm a very impatient man. Anybody in struggle with being impatient? Anybody want to admit that they're impatient? I'm an impatient man. I hate to be late. I hate to wait. And this summer is a really hard time. <laughs> My wife is here today. That's not fair. <laughs> You know, she knows me really well. That's right. That's right. Uh, it, you know, this year, this summer, driving through South Bend and Mishawaka, if you're an impatient person, you're going to be tested, right? You can't get anywhere in Mishawaka without having to go through some kind of a detour. It's awful. I'll be glad when it's done because the roads will be wonderful. So I don't complain that much, but boy, am I impatient when I get behind the wheel. I want my time to count for something. Every moment that I have, I'm very structured like that. I'm organized, and and my family knows this really well. But the beautiful thing about my marriage, the beautiful thing about what God did there was that not while I'm over here on this side, my wife is way over here on this side. She is spontaneous. She is fun-loving, and the schedule is thrown out the window. When When she brought me here this morning, She dropped me off at 8 o'clock, and she said, I don't know if anybody's going to be here. We have a 9 o'clock service. You know, it's not in her nature. And I thought, there's certainly going to be people here, and there were. It was wonderful. Uh, One of the the funniest things that happens with us, and uh, we go back and forth, and and we have a lot of fun with Katie. Uh, the boys and I do. We pull into the driveway after we've been somewhere together. Maybe we've been shopping or whatever it is. And we pull into the driveway. We pull up and we park. And the guys get out of the car because that's what you do, right? When you park the car, you get out of the car. You unbuckle. You get out. You grab the groceries and you go in the house. And we get up into the house and we all turn around. And not only is she not far behind us, she hasn't even gotten out of the car yet. 
why does she do this? This little idiosyncrasy about Katie is so beautiful. I don't know whether she's listening to the music, whether she's putting her shoes back on, whether she's put, you know, putting, doing something with her makeup. So what we do is we shut the door, lock it, turn out the lights. You know, This is what you get. This is what you get. I don't get it. Why does she do this? When it comes to prayer, I want to know that my time isn't wasted. I want to know that my prayers and the time I spend in prayers for others are going to actually count for something. And I wonder if that is why we have a hard time being consistent in our prayers. If, if we don't pray fervently for other people because we really we, we don't want to waste the time because we keep coming to God with the same things over and over again and nothing happens. Maybe that's why we do that. So I wonder why. Why, why pray? And I'm not speaking of why in the sense of I need this or that because the Bible tells us that if you need anything, ask for it in prayer and it will be given to you. But why pray in the context of God's sovereignty? That he is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful, that he has a plan that is going to be carried out and he is faithful with that plan. Why pray? I took a survey of some of the individuals from my small group and some other people that I know, and I had them write down questions for me about prayer in preparation for this. And here are some of the things that, that came as a result. If God is all-knowing, why should we have to ask for help for others or difficult situations, right? If God knows everything that is going on in my life, in your life, why do I need to come with him with, the, with those prayers? If God knows the desire of my heart, if he knows what I like and what I don't like, and he, he is a God that grants the desire of my heart, why should I need to communicate those things to him? If our prayers are not always answered, how can we go on praying in faith? Can God have a change of mind if we intercede? And if he does, what does that say about his nature? And we all think of that story in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where Abraham is, knows that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sin of that, of that city. And God is looking, or Abraham is looking over the city, and he pleads with God, and he says, God, if there are 50 people, if there are 30 people, if there are 10 people, God, will you destroy this city? And God changes his mind, at least in those prayers. And he says, of course, if there are 10 people in that city, I will not destroy it. What does that say about his nature? Does intercessory prayer affect the destiny of other people? And do my prayers really matter? Do they really matter? In the whole scheme of things, and what, is what I'm communicating have any weight? Can my prayers actually change things? Sam, in last week's message, showed us how important it is to pray because prayer does indeed change things. Does God need me to pray, or does he just want me to pray? These questions deserve answers. And understanding the why of something like prayer can be the motivating force behind us being fervent in our prayers. Not just that it's important that I should pray because the Bible says so, but also because I believe it. I know that I should pray, and I know that my prayers are effective. The real question is, does a sovereign, all-powerful God need my involvement or not? Is prayer really necessary? And if so, why? In order for us to understand, I think we need to go back to the beginning. 
I think we need to go back to creation. I think that we need to understand who we are and why God created us the way that we are and how we fit in his plan. God made, he recreated us to be his representation in the world. And the power that you and I have in prayer is rooted in that relationship that we have with God. From the beginning, we were created to be the representation of God here on earth. God didn't give away ownership of the earth, but he did assign you and I a responsibility. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Adam was the guardian and the keeper of all of this, and he was, he was created to have dominion over all of the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The Hebrew word here for image gives us the idea of a shadow or an illusion. What is an illusion? It's something that you think that you see, but on closer look, you discover that your eyes have tricked you. Uh, About a year ago, I think it was, Katie and I were in Indianapolis, and we went to Circle Center Mall downtown and went into a card shop. And we were just going through the cards, just laughing about some of the cards as we went through. And, and we were actually in there buying something for somebody. I can't remember. And so I was on task, on focus, to go get that, do that thing that I was in there. And so I was walking around, and she was just, as she normally does, just hanging out in this one area, picking up every card and going through it. And all of a sudden, I hear her laugh. Now, you've heard her laugh this morning. You've probably heard her laugh a lot of times here at church. And it caused me to turn around. And around here, I see my wife on the other side of the store laughing at this card and showing it to an absolute stranger. Because at that moment, my wife thought that that was me standing beside her. It was the illusion of me there. It's this picture that as if Adam was placed in the garden and all of creation would look at Adam and they would say, for a moment, I thought I saw God but it's only Adam, the image of God. Listen to how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 8. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Not only were we created in the image of God, but we were crowned as his most glorious creation. We were given this stamp of glory upon us. The very glory of God is upon us. The Hebrew word for glory literally means heavy or weighty. 
And it is linked to the concept of the authority of God. So as God placed man in the garden and gave him dominion over all of the earth, he gave man his glory. He crowned him with his glory and he gave him dominion over all of the earth. Adam was a representation of the glory of God. And yet Adam sinned, right? Adam fell from that glory. Adam... Uh, released that power, and he no longer became the image or retained the image of God. And because of Adam's sin, you and I don't either. Until God, in his desire that we continue to be the image of God, made a way for that to happen. Paul speaks about this in Corinthians uh, when, uh, when, when he is... He's talking about that, that image and that glory that, that we have and the ability that we have to come before him. In the Old Testament, God spoke to many men. He spoke to Elijah. He spoke to Moses. And when, when God spoke to Moses in the tabernacle, he would go into the tent of meeting, and he, would, he was the only one. He would go into the very presence of God. He didn't see God face to face, but his very presence was there. And when he came out, his, fo- his face shone with the glory of God, so much so that the people did not want to look at him. said, Moses, you're scaring us. Put something over your face to cover your face, because the way that you are glowing, we're going to die if we have to look at you any longer. And so he put a veil over his face. And then Paul references that here when he talks about what happened uh, because of the sacrifice and the gift of Jesus Christ, how we are restored. He says, therefore, since we have such a bold hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit." We must be changed. You and I, when we come to Jesus Christ, we are changed back into his image. And that veil is taken away in Christ, and we now can stand in the glory of God when we turn to the Lord. We have been recreated, and now we can represent God to the world. When I understand that, when I grasp that idea that I am created to be the image of God, and I carry with him his glory and his authority, it affects my prayer life. I no longer come to God in my own measly power. In fact, I can't come to God at all. My righteousness is like filthy rags, but Jesus can. And because he lives in you and I, we can boldly approach that throne. We have access to the one who can change anything. That's part of his plan. I've always said, I've always taught that God doesn't need us, right? I mean, we know that from Scripture, from Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 25. The, the, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and the earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
God doesn't need us. And yet, within his great plan, I believe that God needs us to pray. God needs us to pray for others. Let, let me cite just a couple examples to you. One of them is, is from Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. And this is, this is after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is after the Daniel and the lion's den. This is, this is at, toward, the, toward the end of Israel's captivity. And Daniel is reading the prophet Jeremiah. And in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 9, he says this. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. It's over. It's done. The the price has been paid. And then, this is what Daniel did. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Why is it that Daniel does this? Why is it that he is motivated at the end of all of this to know that God's plan is going to unfold, that he prays on his behalf and on behalf of the people? Listen to what happens later in the text in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to you to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. I wonder how many promises from God have gone unfulfilled because he can't find the human involvement that he needs. Gabriel told him, it's because you prayed that I have come to fulfill God's plan. I wonder how many times there are things that God desires to do that fit within his plan, but because there is no human involvement, it doesn't happen. God God called Ezekiel the prophet much the same to be a watchman over the people and to communicate to them that he was going to destroy them because of their wickedness. And Ezekiel spoke these words to the people. Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? You see, God's holiness and his integrity and his uncompromising truth prevent him from simply excusing sin. It must be judged. But on the other hand, not only is he holy, but he is also love. And his love always desires to redeem, to restore, and to show mercy. This is God's plan. Scripture tells us that God takes no pleasure in in the death of the wicked because they're going to be eternally condemned. Another way of saying this verse would be that God would say, while my justice demanded judgment, my love wanted forgiveness. And had I been able to find a human to ask me to spare his people, I could have. It would have allowed me to show mercy. But because I found no one, however, I had to destroy them. Either God wants the world he created in this condition, or he doesn't. And when you look out at the world today, and you see some of the things that you see, and you're moved by them, and your heart breaks because of them, you you can ask that same question, God, do you like it the way it is, 
or don't you? And he doesn't. I believe with all of my heart. Either he is powerless to do anything about it, or he needs and is waiting on something from us to bring about change. Our prayers have power to change the world. Peter Wagner said this. This is so, so good, so key. Human inaction does not nullify the atonement. God, God's desire to redeem us, his plan to redeem us, which is the atonement. Human inaction does not nullify that plan. God's plan is going to be carried out. But human inaction can make the atonement ineffective for lost people. If you and I aren't obedient in praying for other people and obedient in then what God asks us to do to reach lost people, God's plan will not be carried out because we aren't being, we aren't being obedient. God needs us to pray. <clears throat> this truth <laughs> intimidates us sometimes, I think, with the responsibility that, that it implies. Or it can condemn us because of the lack of prayer. But I want to I propose something different. I want to encourage you to look at that and, and to understand that this responsibility can also be a privilege and it can be a great joy for those of us that pray for others. And if allowed, this revelation can elevate us in our hearts to new positions of dignity alongside of our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus. We are co-laborers with Him. I'm so very thankful for our prayer team. I'm so very thankful for the, the elders and the leaders of our congregation because they have taken that, that responsibility seriously to represent the glory of God and to come boldly before the throne on our behalf. The scriptures then will come alive when Matthew 9, 38 says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. And we believe that that is God's plan. And when we begin to ask that, people will be motivated to serve. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And when we pray that prayer, when we understand the glory and the authority that we have to come before God and the image that we have upon us, we will see the word of God spread rapidly among our community. So it gives us a whole new perspective on the way that we live. It gives us a whole new look at the surroundings all around us. And we look at things differently. We begin to walk our neighborhoods intentionally. Not just taking a walk because we need the exercise or going from point A to point B, which is what I do. <laughs> but we walk and we recognize everything that is around us. People that make up our communities and need our prayers. And God needs us to pray for them as they struggle with situations like divorce and poverty and abuse and financial stress. And the list can go on and on. About a year ago, uh, Katie and I, I think, I don't know if the boys were with us or not, but we were headed to Pennsylvania and um, where I'm from, Washington, Pennsylvania, and we were taking the turnpike and on the way there, we stopped at a rest area. My wife went to go get coffee and I went into the convenience store and I was the only one in there aside from the young lady who was behind the counter. And I walked up to the counter to pay for what I had, what I was going to purchase and I noticed that she was just two seconds off of crying. And I don't know about you, but that awfully makes you feel really uncomfortable. You don't know this person, and it looked like they're going to cry. And, and our nature maybe would be just to kind of, you know, put our head down and do what we're going to do and walk away and like as if we didn't notice, but <laughs> I noticed it. And our eyes connected. And I said, what's your name? And she said, Nicole, I remember that forever just because of that moment. 
And she said, and I said, Nicole, I, I just, I believe that God places people in my life from time to time that I need to pray for. How can I pray for you? And then she went on to talk to me about how she, is, she was, uh, uh, she, has a, she has a little baby and out of wedlock and the father isn't paying anything to help. And she's trying to get enough hours at work so that she can support her family. And I said, I can pray for that. I definitely can pray for that, and I will continue to pray for that. And every week I remember her just because of that moment. And, and I reached into my pocket, and I grabbed out the, the only cash I had, which was 28 bucks, and I gave it to her. And I don't know what is happening with Nicole, and I don't know if I ever will, but I have to believe that God is doing something with that moment. And I also have to believe that she saw a representation of Jesus, not because of who I am, not because of what I did, but because Jesus was there at that moment and met her there. He works through us, and he needs us. It also causes us to look at Facebook differently, right? It becomes for us, I think, sometimes a place for us to talk about the government, talk about politics. It becomes a place for us to post things that are mundane, this week I posted things that I was doing, and I probably thought, I thought probably all, most of these people that are looking at this are probably like, why in the world do I even want to read that, you know? There's just so much stuff that goes on, you know? Last night I was, I was just putting the final touches on my message, and I happened to be looking through Facebook, and a young lady who was in our youth group back in Battle Creek, I remember baptizing her when she was just little, and she's in her 30s now, and still very, she's still loves the Lord and goes to church. But she wrote this, I need prayers from my boys. I had a series of unfortunate events yesterday that ended with another series of unfortunate events. We've been there, right? They're struggling with so much with some personal things and some psychological issues, and I'm asking for a prayer chain right now for them. Please share this with anyone that will pray for us. Thank you, and God bless. I just thought of something, because I've shared this twice. And I didn't even think about how that has just been perpetuated, that people will remember that I talked about this young lady and are praying to. That's amazing. I responded, I just saw your post, and I wanted to send you a note personally to commit to pray and fast for you and your family. I know what it is like to walk through these shadows when our kids are dealing with difficulties. We want to rescue them and make things okay. And it may be hard to see right now, but you are training them upright. You are surrendering them to God who loves them more than you do. And you, are living as a, and you are living as an example of Jesus, and they won't forget it. Sending you all my love. Please feel free to keep in touch. And thank you for your, the honor of carrying your burden in this way. What an opportunity. What an opportunity if you and I would just open up our eyes. And God does give us opportunities all the time. He, he is our intercessor. He is our mediator. And he is the one that puts, it, that puts our hands into God's hands. And because of, uh, because of Jesus Christ, we can do this. And also because of Jesus Christ, now I can take uh, the prayer that you have, and I can present you before God, and he hears. And I want you to understand what Jesus did. When I come to him and pray, it, it may sound like this. Jesus says, Father, Lowell is here to speak with you. He isn't coming on his own merits or righteousness. He is here based on mine. He is here in my name. And I am sure you remember that I've gone before you and Lowell and provided him with access to you. 
He has a few things to ask you. And so God might respond in this way. Of course I remember, son. You made him one of ours. Because he came through you, Lowell is always welcome here. Then he looks at me and says, come boldly to my throne of grace, son, and make your request known. He wants us there. He desires us there. So what do I pray for? What opportunities is God giving me? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives a few ideas. I urge then, first of all, I love that. I mean, just I could spend right there. First of all, this is what you do. Whatever you've got going on, first of all, that request prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives and in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God is pleased and desires all men to be saved, even our enemies, even the people that we don't know that are out there in the world, that, are, that come from different countries, different faiths. And so we pray for our government. We pray for our nation. We pray for our world. The second scripture, the next scripture I'd like to look at is Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus' words say this, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Your enemy, the ones that you know that are hurting you constantly, that offend you, that abuse you, that take advantage of you. It's easy for us to love the people around us, right? To to love our family, to love our friends, the people that we are connected with. And even if they have an attitude that sometimes it grates on us, we still love them because we might know exactly why they're going through what they're going through. But what about the person that you meet across the counter or the one that's waiting on you or the people that are in line with you? the people that you don't know, and they have an attitude, and immediately we say, that's so unfair, that is so unright, and we, we, we bite back, don't we? Let me pose this thought. What if we had a window into their life? Would that change our attitude? I remember a, a teacher that my boys had, I know Daniel had, uh, Miss Judy, in Ohio, when we were, they were in middle school, and we went, uh, and she was, she was grumpy. I, I wanted to call her Miss Grumpy. Uh, and and I, she never had a smile on her face, and I think that she probably was very intimidating and scary to the kids. I'm not sure if Daniel felt that way, but I immediately decided that I didn't like her and thought she needed to go. I had the opportunity to go with my son and with all of the other, I think it was 7th graders or 8th graders to Washington, D.C., and Miss Judy was the lady who led that trip every year. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is going to be fun. But during that trip, I made a commitment to pray for all of the parents and the faculty for the week, and God showed me some things about Miss Judy that opened my eyes. I discovered that she, first of all, had a truly amazing love and care for the kids, 
And they responded in respect to her in a way that you don't see very much today. She may have been hard on the kids, but they loved her and she loved them. And she worked hard to see that each of her students would succeed. And as I prayed, I got to know her a little bit. God softened my heart for her and I discovered that, uh, that she had an adult son who had Down syndrome that she cared for. And, and that years before, her husband had left her and she was left caring for her child by herself. And it probably had hardened her heart and made her have the attitude that she did. I knew what to pray then. It's easier for us to pray for those we love. But what is needed for us is to pray for the Miss Judys in the world. God will change our hearts first so that he can use us to bring about change in the hearts of others. Of course, when we pray, we, we know that we pray for the sick. And we all have those lists, right? James says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and, the, and anoint Pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Not only do we pray for the physically sick, but I want to encourage you to look at, look at other people and understand that we are all spiritually sick. We all have forgiveness that needs to be poured out into our lives. And possibly in that moment, we have that opportunity to bring that. I believe that that's what happens in our small groups. I think that's one of the things that's so important, where we, where we live life with one another and we talk about life struggles and we lay out in the open difficulties that we each have walking through life together. And this is true community and true discipleship at work among us. God desires for each of us to be healed, not just physically, but I think even more importantly, he desires for us to be healed spiritually. We have the special task of being the vessel of God's grace and his mercy. And I love that we have leaders. I love that we have elders in this church. I love that we have an intercessory prayer team that does that and takes it seriously. And lastly, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Divine appointments. I am so thankful for one of my mentors Dean Troon, for helping me to see the truth of this passage. In a sense, there are no coincidences, folks. I mean, you might believe that there are, and you might say that there are, but at least I believe that there are no coincidences. I believe with all of my heart that you are here today on purpose, and that you were brought here on purpose by God for a reason. And all of us, and for all of us, there are varied and unique opportunities for us today, but we miss out because we don't walk around with our eyes wide open. I went to Notre Dame this week, as I often do. I actually was going there to work on my sermon, to put the final touches on it. So I had my, my task, what I was doing, and I walked into the building, I got my coffee, and I saw across the room a young man that I'd seen a couple times. His name is Francis, and he's a young man from Uganda who has come here to work on his, his uh, graduate degree uh, in peace studies. I thought that was very interesting. And... Uh, Francis was there for another reason. He was there to meet with a guy about his GRE and taking the test. But I believe that Francis and I were there to meet each other. And so we prayed, and I asked him how I could pray. 
Coincidence? I don't believe it for an instant. Everywhere you go, you are there to be a representation of Jesus Christ. You carry his image. You carry his glory. And God needs you. God needs you to pray for others. This morning, we have people that have answered that call to pray. And they want to pray for you. And instead of saying, you know, uh, you know, if you have some prayer requests, come forward and these people will pray for you. I, I just want to ask you a different kind of a question. What do you need? What do you need, but you are having a hard time praying because you are finding it hard to believe? That you don't have the strength enough in yourself to be able to pray for that, and you need somebody to come beside you and intercede for you, to take your hand that is weak and to put it into the hand of a, of a God who is strong and sovereign and has a plan for your life. That's what we do when we pray for one another. We are interceding. We are coming between God and man, and we are putting one hand into another. God desires for that. And so if you, are, have, if you have something that you need this morning, I encourage you, after I pray, to come forward. There will be people here to meet you and to pray with you and present you to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Father, for meeting us here. Thank you, Father, for, for creating us in your image and in your glory, not so that we can receive anything out of this, but, Father, it's all for your praise. It's all for your glory, and that's what we want to see more than anything in the world, God, is for you to be lifted up and exalted in this world. And, Father, if there's anything that is hindering that, Father, I just pray that you would make that very clear to us now, that there may even be a sense of repentance and, and, and conviction in this room, that we would be changed so that we will understand the power that we have, Father, to become before your throne boldly. Do with us, Father, what you will. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>